Dale Brumfield is an adjunct professor of English and digital archaeology. Uh, he's the field director for Virginians for Alternatives to the Death Penalty, and he's the author of 10 books, including Virginia State Penitentiary, A Notorious History, Richmond Independent Press, an independent press in D.C. and Virginia, and Underground History. Dale's stories have appeared in Richmond Magazine, Style Weekly, The Stanton News Leader, Austin Chronicle, RTD, the US, uh, USA Today, among others. He's won numerous awards for his arts feature stories, and his books, Richmond Independent Press and Independent Press in D.C. and Virginia, were both nominated for Library of Virginia Literary Awards in nonfiction. His story, Death Row Report, was nominated for a Pushcart Prize by the Rappahannock Review at Mary Washington University in 2014. Uh, we're thrilled to have you all here today for a very interesting topic, and I hope that you would please join me in a warm welcome for Dale Brumfield. Wow, thanks for coming. Wednesday afternoon at lunch, what a crowd. I'm so thrilled and honored to be here. 30 years, 35 years ago, I lived right across the road on Boulevard, and I was right across from this building. I never imagined myself speaking here. <laughs> so it's such a pleasure to be here, so um, thank you again. Well, welcome to 500 Spring Street. For 191 years, the most notorious address in Richmond, if not in all of Virginia. How many of you remember the penitentiary? How many of you wondered, why did they build a penitentiary in the middle of the city? <laughs> yeah, I would always thought the same thing. But then we're going to see that really was not the case at all. Um, so we start delving into the history of this facility. I, start, I lived with this book for about two years. The Library of Virginia probably is about ready to ask me to never come back because <laughs> all the records from the penitentiary are there. And so I was a frequent visitor if not a constant visitor to the Library of Virginia. But um, like, like we said, this is not my only book. I do have 10 of them out there. Uh, and <laughs> okay, a bald push. Um, my last book, Theme Park Babylon, just came out September 23rd. It's a novel. Uh, I worked 20 years in the theme park business. But in, in addition, my resume looks like a CVS receipt, okay? <laughs> it's huge. Um, so there's the penitentiary, independent press in DC and Virginia, Richmond Independent Press. Uh, standards, all these. Some of these are out of print, unfortunately, uh, but uh, about seven of them, I think, are still available anywhere. So let's move forward. We wonder why a penitentiary is in the middle of Richmond. This whole thing started in 1775, if you want to go all the way back to the beginning. What happened then? Thomas Jefferson was looked around and said, we got to do better with our laws. In 1775, they were still, uh, colonial Virginia was still clinging to the old Thomas Dale colonial martial laws of 1611, where punishments were terrible. They were, uh, there were no prisons, there were jails. People were only held in jail at that time, uh, awaiting trial. And then, depending on the outcome of your trial, would dictate whether you got put in stocks, whether you got executed, or whether you had a hole bored through your nose like women who commit adultery got. Many times, cutting off your ears or docking your ears was a common punishment for many of these. Sometimes they'd put you in the stocks and nail your ears to the sides, and your neighbors were free to throw things at you. 
Thomas, Thomas Jefferson looked at this and said, we got to do better than this. So he introduced in 1775 penal reform laws. Guess where they went? Nowhere. <laughs> he didn't give up. In 1785, he introduced them again. Guess where they went? Nowhere. But they only lost by one vote. James Monroe wrote to him and said, looks like we're still stuck with the old colonial laws. But Jefferson didn't give up. In 1796, he introduced, again, sweeping penal reform legislation. And guess what? This time, it passed. So see, 20 years is all it took for the Virginia General Assembly to move on penal reform. <laughs> Some things never change, do they? <laughs> so with these new laws in effect, Jefferson said he, when he was ambassador of Paris, he saw the French and the British doing something he found fascinating. They were building these enormous buildings and putting lawbreakers inside of them, making them work during the day and sit in solitary confinement at nights and on Sundays. It was called labor in confinement. Jefferson said, that's what we need to be doing in Virginia. So he comes back over and he talks to the governor. He goes to the GA and he saw, said, we need to build this big building. We need to do it just like this. And the General Assembly agreed with him. Jefferson himself even sketched a drawing of what it should look like. It was based on a design called the Panopticon. You may have heard of it. A man named Jeremy Bentham in Europe pioneered it. It was a prison built in a horseshoe shape with a central guard tower in the yard in the middle. So using that as a guide, the GA ignored Jefferson's sketches and hired this man, Benjamin Latrobe. Latrobe had just come over uh, just a few months prior from Europe on what must have been the boat ride from hell. It took 13 months. They ran out of food. It got blown off course in a hurricane. It was an absolute disaster of a boat ride, but Latrobe made it. He landed in Norfolk, designed a couple of home, private homes, and then he submitted plans for a penitentiary house based on the word penitence. Jefferson was a firm believer in rehabilitation and penitence. He was a real pioneer. You know what? Nobody else in America, early America was thinking along those lines, except the Quakers in Philadelphia were trying some things of their own. But Jefferson was a real pioneer in penal reform because of this. So Benjamin Latrobe submitted drawings to the General Assembly, and on the right is a very nice color rendering that he did in 1796 uh, showing what this penitentiary house would look like. Um, these drawings are still in the collection of the Library of Virginia. Here's a couple of early drafts that Latrobe did. You can see the horseshoe shape or the, the semicircle with individual cells. Uh, you can see the front up there. Now the, the um, up here, you see he took that from uh, Newgate Prison in England. It was a Latin saying and chains up there, but they didn't put that on the uh, final building. So all, the, all this work, they went and this, built this gigantic, massive building. Now, many, there are still a few construction records uh, still in existence that I was able to access. It was a fascinating look. Uh, they started construction in 1797 on a hill overlooking the James River. Now, remember, they didn't build it in the middle of Richmond. Richmond, in 1797, was this little town in Chaco Bottom. So this was actually built on the far western outskirts of Richmond, out, out in the where Willow Lawn might, might have been built in 1956, in the middle of nowhere. Actually, William Byrd's uh, plantation was right across the road 
in Belvedere where Oregon Hill is now. And for the little piece of information of the day that you won't be able to get out of your head, the largest serpentine brick wall in America surrounded William Byrd's property. And they tore it down to build chimneys for homes in Oregon Hill. Yeah. So anyway, these drawings, this, this building started going up, and then it went up, and, um, and there it is. This picture was taken, one of the only pictures I could find of the original Latrobe building. This was taken in 1925, right before it was torn down. Now you can see the original building only had three, three stories. The fourth story was added sometime later on. But look at the arches. This doesn't look like a penitentiary, does it? It was very unique. But Latrobe made a lot of mistakes. Actually, everybody made a lot of mistakes. When this penitentiary opened on April 1st, 1800, Latrobe had seriously underestimated Richmond winters, for one thing. There was no heat in the entire building. Windows only had bars on them. Many prisoners died of weather-related illnesses. Solitary confinement was especially bad. Uh, the solitary cells were over on this side of the building in the basement. And I have found one instance of a prisoner whose feet froze to the floor and had to be removed. So it was, it was awful. The problem was nobody knew what they were doing. Literally, this is brand new. This whole thing of putting people for long periods of time, it, this was a brand new concept. And they were just fly, literally flying by the seat of their pants back then. So then Jefferson got the idea that, okay, what about the labor part? We got them in confinement. We need them to work. The Quakers had been trying in Philadelphia different things, road projects. Those weren't working. Prisoners were escaping. Um, all these different things. So Jefferson had the idea, and he, the warden, a man named Callis at the time, got the idea of building a nail manufacturing facility on right there inside the penitentiary. So he started building workshops. And he started putting in, he started out making nails in 1802. And then the first woman was admitted in 1803, by the way. Oh, I found out who the very first prisoner was. The very first admission was a man named Thomas Merriman. He stabbed to death, he was a jilted lover. He stabbed to death his ex-girlfriend's brand new husband during their wedding party. <laughs> during a dance, he stabs the guy to death. He escapes to what is now West Virginia, but guess what? He gets caught. And he was from Prince, William, Prince Edward County. I'm sorry, Prince Edward. They bring him back to Prince Edward. They put him in prison in Prince Edward. He had to cool his heels there for a couple of weeks until the penitentiary opened. When it opened on April 1st, they brought Thomas Merriman in. He was inmate number one. What happened was I found out who the last inmate was there. I had to go find out who the first one was to complete that narrative arc. So they started making these manufacturing facilities. And this is a pretty good, this is a map from 1875 that shows the penitentiary with the women's department, a tobacco factory. They started making plug and twist and smoking tobacco at the penitentiary, and a cooper, carpenter, and shoe shop. They started making shoes there as early as like 1804, 1805. So they started making things, and guess what the penitentiary discovered then? We're making money. We're paying for ourselves. That's exactly what they wanted. And the General Assembly was all smiles. 
So they say, okay, we got this thing going. That didn't happen overnight. It took a long time for them to become profitable. And prior to the Civil War, they actually started opening penitentiary stores in Richmond where you could go buy things that were made by inmates at the penitentiary. Oh, you better believe the private businesses didn't like that very much. They could undercut them in price because they're basically, in, it's inmate labor. They were selling stuff for next to nothing. So it took a long time, though. It took in the 1890s before they started passing law. Oh, the 1920s was when the final law went, where now they just, inmate-produced things can only be bought by state governments. So they had this, they, they were, a lot, like I said, nobody knew what they were doing. So moving along, I get asked a lot. We were just talking about Hamilton. How can you talk about Hamilton without talking about Aaron Burr, right? I get asked sometimes, who is the most famous prisoner at the penitentiary in that 191-year history? Well, I would say Aaron Burr may be the most famous one, not the most notorious one, though. And I'll tell you about him later. Aaron Burr was held in the penitentiary for about 30 days in 1807 while he awaited trial for treason. Apparently, life wasn't so bad for Aaron Burr. According to some letters who wrote his daughter, he was talking about all the good food that was being brought to him. Uh, pineapples. He even got a pineapple. Where did that come from? Um, he was saying, like, he said in his letter, he said, this is not so bad. So Aaron Burr, yeah, possibly 30 days he was kept in the penitentiary, maybe the most famous prisoner. Uh, some War of 1812, British prisoners were held there too uh, for a short period of time. Uh, the illustration up the top there is the penitentiary in about 1865. Uh, so from 1800 to 1860 to the Civil War was basically a learning experience. They're just trying to get the hang of what this whole thing is. Now, if you remember, right about the time the penitentiary opened was Gabriel's Rebellion, right? And when they caught the, um, all the uh, anarchists and the protesters and they were started executing them, and they executed 10 of them, and they had about 10 more left, to execute, but they wrote to uh, Jefferson and asked him personally, we've executed 10 people, should we keep going? And Jefferson said, no, stop. You've executed enough. What Jefferson was worried about, we weren't gonna attract new business to Virginia if we don't put our money where our mouth is on penal reform. So he stopped the executions of uh, Gabriel's Rebellion. So. Up until the Civil War, now, I, I, I have only got an hour. Believe me, I could keep you here for a week <laughs> talking about this play. But when it came to the Civil War, something very unusual happened. Um, all the prisoners escaped, everyone. What happened was, during the evacuation of Richmond, the warden heard what was going on. He gathered up all the records in his office and disappeared. Those records were never found, by the way. We lost a treasure trove of information that way. All the guards said, see ya. They left, left the inmates there on their own. Well, the inmates, they set fires. They started tearing the place up. And they said, what are we doing? We can leave. Every single one escaped. The penitentiary was a ghost town by the next day. And they stole everything that wasn't nailed down. One guy stole an anvil out of the blacksmith shop. <laughs> How do you escape over a 17-foot wall carrying an anvil? 
I, I would, if I saw him, it's like, you're free to go, pal. <laughs> I'm not gonna try to stop somebody like that. So the penitentiary was a ghost town. They all, most of them went downtown to either participate or watch the fires. But guess what? Almost all of them came back. You know why? Think about it. It's 1865. You may be from the outer reaches of Virginia. You got no friends. You got no food. You got nowhere to go. But these guys find themselves walking around in circles. They just came back to the penitentiary. And by about 1868, they had gotten everybody back. <laughs> Either gone out and find them or they voluntarily returned. It's crazy. But that's the way things work. Now, think about something. Prior to picture IDs, how do you know somebody's who they say they are? Prisoners, inmates would get logged in the penitentiary, no driver's license, no social security card, no passport, no nothing. All they can do is ask you, what's your name? And then they just have to take measurements. They came up with this idea called anthropometric measuring, in which they measured virtually everything on you. And something else they did was identify you by scars. What if an inmate came in, was admitted, that had no scars? They created one. <laughs> the penitentiary admittance offer, officer would cut the guy, create a scar, and log it into his logbook. Yeah, yeah, you know. <laughs> so anyway, this is a page from a book from about 1885 of measurements of some of these people. I don't know what the numbers mean exactly. Okay, over there, the top guy, 7501, says his height is 72.8. Now, if that means six foot eight, that's a pretty big guy. But these other numbers just don't seem to add up. So I don't know exactly what the numbers mean. But it's just an example, their head length, their head width, their middle finger, their foot, their forearm, and, and that spreadsheet goes on for another six or eight columns off this column. It's the only way they had to identify people with. They didn't start photo identification, taking mug shots of prisoners until about, oh, let me think, it was about 1905, 1906. And it was because of one prisoner in particular, and I gotta tell you about this guy. William Styers was his name. When he was caught in, I don't know where in Virginia, it was a, it was a robbery and, some, and uh, most, most crimes were robbery back then. He said, you can't hold me, I will get out. And they said, well, you watch us. This is the Virginia State Penitentiary. Well, William Styers got a job. They wouldn't let him work in the blacksmith or the shoe shop because that would give him access to tools. They didn't trust him with tools, so they gave him an office job. William found out in the closet of his office was a panel, and he got that panel off. And for months, he collected food from the canteen, tinned uh, sardines, potted meat, crackers, cigarettes, anything he could get, and he stashed it in that panel. Then one day, the five o'clock whistle roll call went off. William couldn't be found. They searched the whole place. They opened up barrels. They opened boxes. They poked and prodded and looked everywhere from William Stars. The guy must have escaped. Although there's no evidence of an escape, usually there's a ladder up by the wall or something that shows that someone had gotten out. So they put, the whole prison was on standby for a couple of days. William never showed up. So they went, they all stood down. Turned out, 
William had slithered under the shop where he worked. 21 inch high crawl space through an open sewer and lived there for 13 days while he chipped and dug and chiseled his way through a 24-inch exterior wall. <laughs> when they found out what had happened, two guards went down in there. So they couldn't stand it more than two minutes. They came up gagging and even said, how did that guy live 13 days down there? But he did. He laid on his stomach for 13 days, chiseling his way out of there. It's because of William Styers that they introduced mug shots because they, they needed pictures. They knew they needed pictures of inmates. So that's how that happened. Toileting, we talk about open sewer. Let me just, just touch on this subject, and I believe me, I won't go into a lot of detail. One of the problems with Benjamin Latrobe's original structure wasn't just the lack of heat and the fact that there were no windows in the doors either. So the guard had to open the door to check on the inmates on the inside. There was no sanitation. They had five-gallon toilet buckets in their cells, and once a day, they got to come out and empty their toilet bucket down a trough that went into a holding pond down where near where Tredegar is now. They think the cholera epidemic of Richmond in 1842 was partially because of the holding pond. And they said the stench was so bad in the summer, they actually had to cut holes in the exterior wall to try to let air in, because the, the smell would just gather inside that wall and just make a horrible situation. So. Like I said, you learn, you know, you try it, you learn, you move forward, you keep going. So this is a pretty good illustration of uh, another building that was built in front of Latrobe's building. This building stayed up a long time. If you look at the very top, you see three big ventilators. Those three ventilators are now behind Tredegar. They're the only thing left of the penitentiary are those three ventilators, and they're massive, the one in the middle in particular. On the right is an illustration that appeared, I believe, in Harper's of some inmates going to work in about uh, in the 1850s, 1840s, 1850s. You can see they had already worked off the stripes. Uh, the striped convict uniforms were a development of a warden named Elam Lind in New York. He came up with the idea. The original Virginia Penitentiary convict uniforms were a solid color. They started out yellow but then they couldn't get enough yellow uniform, so they went to uh, kind of a drab, olive drab after that. And then the striped ones came after that. When Elam Lind came up with striped uniforms, they, they went, made that move. It was so, it was all the cl only clothes they had. If they escaped, they were easily easy to spot. That was the only reason for doing that. Now, right after the Civil War, Virginia decided they didn't want anything to do with the antebellum South. They wanted to get away from the lost cause. One of the, ways get, one of the ways to get away from the lost cause was to expand north and west. So they start building railroads. And an unholy alliance formed between the General Assembly, the penitentiary, and the railroad barons. They needed cheap labor, basically, to build these railroads. What cheaper labor is there than penitentiary inmates, right? So they start a leasing program. Virginia started it. Many southern states also started it. They start leasing these inmates out to work on these railroads. And the railroad barons quickly un understood they could literally work these men to death with no punitive act. It's one uh, 
railroad guy said in Kentucky famously, one dies, get another. And that was the ethos that they lived by. They could, they found, they could literally work them to death. Now, if one got sick or was too broken to work anymore and they thought he was about to die, they quickly put him on a train and shipped him back to the penitentiary so the death wouldn't be on their hands. And they had, would have to record that the inmate died at the penitentiary, not on the work detail, because it was costly for the railroads to have an inmate die in their presence. They would lose a $100 deposit, quite frankly. So they put, quickly put on a train and ship them back. This is a picture. This is not from Virginia. I think these guys were in Florida of uh, leased convicts working prior to 1900. Um, one of the other things, too, they found out about convict leasing. They weren't getting enough inmates. They were looking for more, more workers, OK? So Virginia General Assembly came up with an idea. You ever hear of the Black Codes? The Black Codes was a series of laws that Virginia instituted after the Civil War. They were designed specifically to entrap young black men in frequently nonsense crimes. They did away with a vagrancy law. So all of a sudden, if a black man was seen on someone else's property, he could be arrested and charged with larceny under the idea that he was about to commit a crime. Thought crime, right? They'd get up to 10 years. All of a sudden, one crime was called um, showing an air of satisfaction about the end of the Civil War. That was a crime for a black man. So all of a sudden, the penitentiary numbers started swelling with young black men being arrested and given five and 10-year prison sentences for these crazy nonsense crimes. And all, they were being shipped out just as fast as they were getting processed at the penitentiary. They were being shipped out to the railroads. One of those men, you may have heard of him, his name was John Henry. That's a statue of him in Talcott, West Virginia. John Henry was an inmate, supposedly, the story goes, he was an inmate at the Virginia State Penitentiary. He was shipped, he got a 10-year sentence for housebreaking, shipped up to work on the railroads, he beat the steam drill, it broke him, they brought him back and he died. They buried him at the White House in the sand, right? A lot of people confused that White House. They said, what, did they take him to Washington? No, the central building of the penitentiary was whitewashed white at the time and was put in. Now, if you look, I, I looked and I, I read Scott Reynolds Nelson's book. It's an excellent book. I don't agree with all of it, but I found John Henry's penitentiary admittance record. Now, I want you to look, though, if you can read it, all the way across to the top, the, the real John Henry was five foot one and a quarter. Not exactly the muscle giant in the statue, right? I think the legend of John Henry grew out of all these men, not just from one. There were other John Henrys admitted to the penitentiary, a lot of them, actually. So I don't think it was based on this one person. But the, the outcome was the same. We had all these young black men being literally worked to death. Another thing, too, I was looking at death records, and I kept finding penitentiary inmates from 1870 to 1900 dying of pneumonia during the summer months. Why do these guys all have pneumonia? Turned out they were digging tunnels for the railroads. The tunnels are mostly sandstone in West Virginia. 
They would nitroglycerin blast, and these inmates were sent in with no protection of any kind to pull out the dust and the debris. They were breathing in sandstone dust and getting silicosis, which turned into pneumonia and ultimately killed them. When they started coughing and couldn't breathe, it's like being suffocated to death. It's a terrible way to die. On the train they went back to 500 Spring Street. They went. So it was a bad situation. John Henry died that very same way. I think he died, this John Henry, anyway, died of silicosis uh, from working in the tunnels. Bad situation. Now, here's an even worse situation. I don't mean to bring you down. But boy, I'm telling you what, this is a chapter in my book that really brought me down and really infuriated me, was the fact that we were putting children in the penitentiary. I want you to look at this. This is an inmate named Thomas Nolan. This boy fell into a tub of boiling coffee and died on the fifth day. Look how old he was, 10. 10 years old. I did some research into Tom Nolan. I got really attached to him. He was from the Roanoke area. This is not him, by the way, this is somebody else. Tom was from the Roanoke area. He had been given four years for setting fire to a tobacco barn sent to the penitentiary. We had no reform schools or juvenile detention facilities back then. I found a nine-year-old who was sent to the penitentiary to serve a sentence. So this is a terrible situation. And they weren't segregated from the adults. The women prisoners were segregated from the adult men. But the children, the boys, the young boys, were not segregated from the adult males. So we got this guy, we got this, this Tom Nolan. He, he, got, he gets four years for setting fire. He gets a job working as a sweeper in the kitchen. And he falls into this tub of coffee. He lives for five days. And then he died on the fifth day. I don't know where he was buried or anything. I have an idea where he might be buried, and I'll talk about that in a minute. This young man right here is named Harry Sitlington. Two days after his 16th birthday, he was convicted and sentenced to death for killing a Rockridge County woman. He was five feet tall, barely 100 pounds. Um, you can see the shirt is way too big for him. Um, he was executed two days after his 17th birthday. Uh, yeah, we were executing 16 and 17-year-olds. Actually, I found one example back in the 1700s prior to the penitentiary. Uh, Virginia executed a 12-year-old, hung him for murder, supposedly. Uh, so yeah, you know, it's a slippery slope you go down. You start imprisoning children, and then you start executing children. It's a bad bad slope to go down, but we were going down it. Now, the General Assembly said, well, yeah, we don't like children being in the penitentiary. However, according to this illustration on the right from Frank Leslie's illustrated newspaper, being in the penitentiary is better for children living like this. At least they get three hots in a cot when they're in prison. These kids are just scrounging through trash. You got to understand, after the Civil War, especially black children, they were frequently committing crimes at the behest of adults. They would be sent out by their parents to steal food or do anything just to get through to the next day. So it wasn't really their fault. And yet I found example after example. We admitted hundreds of children under the age of 12 into the penitentiary between 1870 and 1920 when we finally stopped doing it. Like I said, Virginia doesn't move fast on anything. Know who this man is. Not many people do, but you'll know 
and you'll be really mad at him. His name's Charles Venable Carrington. University of Virginia educated doctor. He uh, got hired at the penitentiary in 1899 as an assistant physician, working for the nephew of President Benjamin Harrison, who was the physician at the time, whose name also was Benjamin Harrison. In 1900, something happened. Dr. Carrington, they got a prisoner at the, at the penitentiary who was out of control. His name was Hiram Steele. He had killed somebody in Tazewell County, and then he threw a fit on the train being transferred to Richmond, and he bit a bunch of people, and just, just out of control guy. Got obviously uh, mentally incompetent. Dr. Carrington looked at Hiram Steele and said, you know, I think I can help that guy. So what do you think Dr. Carrington's idea of helping Hiram Steele was? Lobotomy was a, it's a great guess, but that wasn't it. <laughs> Castration. Yep. So Dr. Carrington started on his own with no approval whatsoever of anybody, his own prototype eugenics program at the penitentiary. There's Hiram Steele on the left. Now, I found something very interesting about looking at these records, these medical records. You'll see right here at the bottom, high steel, H-I period steel. It says vasectomy. He had written something and blotted it out. Luckily, after 110 years, I could look at it, and the ink had faded enough that I could see what he wrote first and marked out. He wrote testectomy. Dr. Carrington started lying about what he was doing. And he started telling everyone, I'm doing medically necessary vasectomies on these young men, and they're, they're fat and happy now. They're trustees about the yard. I say, you know, his descriptions just don't match what a vasectomy really does. And he was writing vasectomy. He came up with all kinds of different variations, dementia vasectomy, all this stuff. Man in the middle, Carter, William Carter, uh, received a vasectomy from Dr. Carrington. The only white man to get one, Moscow Savage, another mentally incompetent young man, uh, also received a vasectomy from Dr. Carrington. All, all in all, we found records of 12 operations that he did, but he, could, he bragged of doing 20. Dr. Carrington couldn't keep his mouth shut. He kept going on and on about what success he was having. And in fact, in 1920, I think, he introduced his own eugenics bill, where we start ridding society of these elements that should not be reproducing. And this was years before Buck v. Bell and the Virginia eugenics program officially got off the ground. He was doing it first with penitentiary inmates. And his bill was restricted to inmates and uh, those in mental institutions, wards of the state. He wanted to restrict it to that. So we started doing these operations. But guess what happened? I think the record's un a little unclear. I think he got found out. The record shows that he suddenly fell out of favor. He was prison doctor golden boy. But all of a sudden, he'd fallen out of favor. And I couldn't find why. 
he fell out of favor. In fact, it got so bad, it got to the point where they locked the door when he showed up for work and said, you're not coming in. Why is this? There's no record that shows why. I think records indicate, and my gut feeling is, and sometimes I'm pretty good with these things, that they found out that Dr. Carrington, in defiance of the General Assembly, his bill went nowhere in the GA, and they said, no, 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 we're not going to perform, we're not going to castrate our prisoners and our mental, mentally ill people, no. But he kept doing it after that. I think the prison, they found out he was doing it. And oddly enough, all of Dr. Carrington's personal records have vanished from that period. They're nowhere to be found. So I'm pretty sure the warden found out that Dr. Carrington was performing these castrations in defiance of the General Assembly, and they suddenly, he lost his job. They wouldn't renew his contract. He made a big stink about it. Oh, yeah. But ultimately, he did not get hired back, and he lived a quiet life right down here on Park Avenue in Richmond until he died in 1925. So, eugenics wasn't just reject, uh, part of the program of the 1920s. It actually started years earlier at the penitentiary. Hanging, no more hangings. In 1908, the General Assembly met, and a, a representative of the Adams Electric Company from Trenton, New Jersey, comes down to the, to the General Assembly and starts handing out flyers for what is described as their new and improved electrocution device, guaranteed 100% reliable. Unlike that piece of junk in Sing Sing that keeps baking and, and doing a terrible job and setting inmates on fire, ours is much better. Problem was, uh, this new electrocution chair cost $6,000. But the General Assembly by then was sick of hangings. They were sick of hangings because they were hanging so many young black men that in other jurisdictions, every jurisdiction in Virginia had their own gallows. They were doing hangings. They were becoming party scenes. What was happening was very religious blacks would gather to watch this young black man entry, his entry into the promised land. And it was a, to them, it was something to celebrate. They knew the justice system was stacked against them. So why not celebrate his going to heaven? And they would give these young black men on these gallows uh, a chance to stand there and talk. I read of one in Bedford in 1909, the last hanging in Virginia. This man stood and talked for 20 minutes. And then he led the crowd in singing, Nearer my God to thee. They had, the, they had authority to do that. It was the first time in their lives that they had authority. And they took advantage of it. One hanging they had down in New Kent County, not only were there food vendors there, patent medicine sellers, somebody had a performing chimpanzee there, that they had a gallows ball afterwards. They gathered in a tobacco bar and had a big dance with a, a, a string quartet and uh, country music, and they, and they had this big dance, and at 2 o'clock in the morning, a voodoo priestess named Lucinda came out with pieces of rope and said, I've got pieces of the rope. If you want to live a long and happy life, they're for sale for 25 cents. She sold them all. Well, the General Assembly saw this. They said, oh, no, 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 no. They decided with the Adams Electric Company to move executions to the basement of the penitentiary. But they only allotted $1,000 to make this change. So what did the penitentiary do? They had inmates build the electric chair. 
Yeah, how about that? Adams wired it. So now executions had gone from celebratory gatherings of black communities to a somber activity witnessed only by 12 white people in the basement of the penitentiary. It was an act of Jim Crow. That's what it was. They were sick of black people gathering and celebrating. So they, they did away with it by moving executions to the basement. That's the gallows that used to be in Stanton, Virginia, by the way. Two early electric chair executions. Now, when I first started working on my book, I had an idea that it was going to be something a little bit different than what it turned out to be. It always, that's always the case. Um, it was going to be a story of the first 100 electric chair executions in Virginia. Uh, so I researched all of them, found incredible stories of injustice, horror, things that never should have happened, but they did. And um, two of the stories that I looked up were these two men. Henry Smith, right here on the left, was the first man executed in the electric chair in Virginia in 1908. Uh, he assaulted a white woman uh, in Norfolk. The uh, law at the time said the media could witness the execution but could not report on what was actually happening. So we don't know how it went. They, they kept their word on that. The man on the right was particularly haunting to me. His name was Winston Green. Winston was a 17-year-old mentally challenged young man in Midlothian who scared a 12-year-old white girl. He jumped out in the road, startled her, and then ran away. She went home, told her dad what had happened. Her dad was infuriated. He got together two posses of men. They fanned out, and they caught this young black man. May or may not have been the one who scared her. We don't know. They beat him up. They brought him back to her house and had this terrified little girl come out and identify him. She said, yes, that's the guy. He went to trial with no legal counsel. He, his trial was... 30 minutes, the jury was out five minutes, 30 days later he was executed. All on one eyewitness identification. So his story was particularly bad, and these are some of the transgressions. It's kind of one reason why I got into the job I'm into. These types of, these types of inequities are full. Virginia is full of these stories that still go on today, unfortunately. On the left, a young woman was executed. She was also 17 years old. Her name was Virginia Christian. Virginia was attacked by her employer, a well-to-do older woman named Ida Belote. Her, she, had, she ran a grocery store. She accused Virginia of stealing from her. Virginia did washing and other uh, hobbies, other jobs around the house. Ida accused Virginia of stealing. They got into a fight. Ida picked up a spittoon and threw it at Virginia and hit her. It was made out of ceramic. It broke, and then Ida started throwing the pieces at Virginia. Virginia was trying to defend herself. She accidentally choked Ida to death. Well, young black girl killing a white employer, that didn't sit well with the court system. She was tried in Norfolk. She was found guilty, and she was sentenced to death in an electric chair. And the governor, everybody, even Maggie Walker herself, appealed to the governor not to execute Virginia Christian. The governor said, we got to show, you know, if you kill your white employer, it, the penalty is always death. And he said, white employer. You have a chance. Virginia, she was executed. The man on the right, Amon Goosler, worked at the Bassett Furniture Factory in Danville, 1947. 
His boss, he and his boss were at a party one night, and he kissed his boss's wife. He heard that his boss was mad at him. And he was afraid he was going to get fired or his boss was going to shoot him or attack him or somehow. So Amon Goosler gets it in his head. He's going to rig up a dynamite trap in his boss's office, which he did. And his boss came in and flipped the light switch and incinerated not his only his office, but half of the plant. Amon was put to death for killing his uh, boss. So the Martinsville Seven. Talk about a middle finger to a civil rights movement. This was it. Seven young black men accused, convicted, and sentenced to death for one of rape, six of aiding and abetting the rape of a white woman. Now, think what you may about the death penalty and rape. It's a terrible crime. I get it. Uh, this is one of them, Harrison, Bill, uh, Billy Harrison, um, and a couple of other newspaper clippings and a flyer uh, at the time. This was 1949 when this happened. Um, and in 1951, uh, they executed four of them in one day, and the electric chair was so hot they had let it cool for an entire day, and then executed the last three uh, the day after that. Um, ex actually, they did five executions on the one day. So right at the dawn of the Civil Rights Movement, they're executed right before the Moton walkout, right? So. One thing I looked up, I said, okay, seven black men, aiding and abetting a white woman, they all seven got death sentences. What was the sentence for a white man who raped a black woman at that same time, that same time period? I found four cases, actually three cases. Two Richmond policemen, two white Richmond policemen raped a black woman, and they got nine years in the penitentiary. I found a farmer in Glasgow, Virginia, who raped a mentally enfeebled, quote unquote, black woman, got fined $20. Talk about racial inequity in criminal justice. It doesn't get much more, much more stark than that. The Martinsville Seven is our own Goldsboro Bo Scottsboro Boys story. Unfortunately, these guys had no happy ending. All seven of them uh, are dead. And then we got the Briley's. 1984, that's when I was introduced to executions. When I went down to the penitentiary to cover, I was publishing Throttle Magazine at the time. We went down to watch the crowds at the execution of James of Linwood Briley. And these two people are on one side of the road. Um, their signs are actually polite compared to some others. And this was 1984, folks. Uh, the side on the other side of Belvedere were having a barbecue. And they were all drunk. And they were shouting racial epithets. Another crowd was praying and having silent pray, uh, on the other side of Belvedere. And I was afraid a riot was going to break out. No doubt their crimes were hideous. Yes, they were. But I said, this is what, this is what it's come to in 1984. We can, we can do better. Like Jefferson said, we can do better. And I got to tell you, you can't talk about escapes. I've got a chapter in my book. My book would be a timeline of horror if I didn't break it up along the way. And one chapter that breaks it up along the way is called Great Escapes and Not So Great Attempts. <laughs> Ernest Harper right here is an example of a great escape. In 1924, he's brought in, I forget what his crime was, and he and his cellmate get the idea that they're going to break out. They both have jobs in the blacksmith shop. They make tools out of scrap and somehow sneak them back into their cell. Between 5 o'clock and 7 o'clock every night, the guards allowed music and singing for the prisoners. 
So for those two hours every day, Ernest and his roommate dug through an 18 inch thick concrete floor. They put mattresses up on the bars to muffle the noise. And then when they were done at seven o'clock, they put a rug over the hole until they had finally, it took them months to cut through that steel reinforced floor, but they finally did. They got out, they escaped. Ernest was never found. One of the only successful escapes from the penitentiary in the entire career of the place. So um, I, I got to hand it to the guy, 18 inch concrete floor, it just shows how desperate they really became. Uh, a couple of other, remember I was telling you about the most notorious prisoner, not just the most famous one? That'd be the guy on the right, that uh, slick down young man with the bad eye. His name is Henry Lee Lucas. You ever hear of a movie called Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer? The movie was made based on him. He stole a car in Waynesboro when he was 17 years old. Got sent to the penitentiary. It was really hard for me to, to connect the dots because the newspaper account said a, a youth. They wouldn't give the name because he was underage. But I found out that on the day, the day after he was sentenced in Waynesboro and sent to the penitentiary, I found his admittance record. Everything matched up. So it's, that's, aha, it's him. Henry Lee Lucas served some time in the penitentiary uh, he, he escaped from the work farm and he got sent back for five more years. Uh, in 1959, he got out and he lived a horrible childhood in Blacksburg. In fact, his mother was so vicious that she was married to a man they called No Legs Lucas because he literally, he had no legs. He was in a wheelchair. His mother was so awful that No Legs Lucas wheels his wheelchair out in the snow and does a face plant face down and freezes to death so he wouldn't have to live one more minute with his wife, <laughs> literally. So Henry moves away. He goes to Michigan to live with a sister. The mother shows up at the sister's house. Henry's got to come back to Blacksburg to take care of me. Henry said, no way, no how am I going back with you? They get into a fight, he kills her, stone dead. He goes to the Michigan penitentiary for 20 years. Uh, but due to overcrowding, they let him out after about 10 years. He goes to Florida. He meets a guy named Otis Toole he and his mentally disabled niece. The three of them circle America for about, I don't know, 10 years or so, doing odd jobs, doing all these things. Finally, Henry kills a woman in Texas, a woman who had employed him. And when he gets caught, he confesses to killing 300 people. So they start carrying him around to all these states for him to be questioned by the police. And Henry's got this incredible knack of listening to what the police are saying and picking up and continuing the story. And that's how they said, yep, that, that's the guy. We got him. He had to do it. Now, never mind the fact that at one point there were 10 murders committed in a two-day period spread out over 6,000 miles. He still was confessing they must be the guy. It's generally the understanding he was confessing to try to keep himself off death row in, in Texas. You know what's going to happen. You go to death row in Texas. Pretty sure what's going to happen there. Otis Toole, on the other hand, his partner, goes to prison in Florida for a murder. He dies in 1982. In 2004, DNA verified that Henry's partner, Otis, was the murderer of 12-year-old Adam Walsh, John Walsh's son. 
Yep. Not good people. But I think Henry, probably the most notorious inmate ever held there. The guy on the left is called Cocky Joe Robinson. He uh, held up a theater in Norfolk and killed the theater manager. Stoll took the money and ran. He got sentenced to death for that. The day of his execution, he broke off a wooden spoon in the lock of his cell door and hung himself from a, a water pipe with a bed sheet. The first death row suicide. Cocky Joe Robinson. And in his file at the Library of Virginia, they have that piece of broken off spoon and a razor blade that he put in the heel of his shoe as a backup in an envelope. I picked him up and held them. By 1982, things had gotten pretty bad at the penitentiary. And it still had 10 more years to go. They did a cell sweep in 1977. This is what they found. Who, may, how did that happen? <laughs> After a riot in 1982, that's what pretty much the front of the building looked like. The prisoners, the inmates knew, this place is going hell fast. And all the guards knew it. This place doesn't deserve to be open. They had to talk first about closing the penitentiary after the Civil War. But they kept it going, just kept it going, kept it going. So in the mid-70s, mid they started building more prisons around Virginia. And then Mecklenburg opened in 1977, and they started moving prisoners out. So there's a general exodus of, of inmates leaving the penitentiary, going to other facilities around the state. Um, and then in 1991, finally, when the last prisoner left, by the way, they executed, the day before the last prisoner left, they executed a guy named Buddy Justice. They finally, Newmarket had actually bought the property in 1985 and uh, sat on it for six years until the General Assembly could get up and get this place closed. And then they started tearing it down. The only thing they saved was the ventilators. Um, nothing else was saved from it. So here I am with two gentlemen. When I was doing my research, I walked around where the property used to be, you know, the bounded by Belvedere, Springs, Second, and Bird Street, six-acre plot. I was walking around looking for the historical marker. Surely there's a historical marker here. There wasn't one. Well, I smelled a big old cons Virginia conspiracy is what I did. They don't want to remember the penitentiary. That's what it is. I shot off some emails, and I wish I'd worded it a little bit differently now. But one reached Jennifer right here next door at the Devar Department of Historic Resources. And I said, why hasn't there a historical marker at the penitentiary? She goes, nobody's ever applied for one. Would you like to? I said, well, heck yeah. <laughs> then I found out sponsors have to pay for them. <laughs> and then after I got the application in, it dawned on me, I need to go talk to the property owner about putting a historical marker for a penitentiary on their property. Ah, oh, what have I done here? But everything worked out. New Market Incorporated was fantastic to work with, and they paid for the marker. <laughs> he said, the vice president said, send me the invoice. So in February of 2017, we unveiled historical highway marker for the penitentiary. The man in the middle is Jerry Gibbons. For 18 years, he worked as Virginia's executioner. He killed 62 men. I profiled him in Richmond Magazine. It's a fascinating story. I was sitting in the library to interview him. And I'm, I'm sitting there. He's, I'm waiting for him to come. And uh, I think, what does he look like? 
What does an executioner look like? Black hood, axe on the shoulder, you know, bandolier style suspender. Here comes this, this soft-spoken Baptist African-American man in a bow tie. He goes, sorry, I'm late. We had choir practice. <laughs> what? <laughs> the executioner was at choir practice? <laughs> He's a fascinating person. He realizes he made a mistake. He's now anti-death penalty. He almost killed. He, he would have put to death an innocent man, Earl Washington, had he gone to that. And he said, what if I've already executed an innocent? So now he works for a contractor who installs highway guardrails. When I interviewed him, I said, what's the difference between your new job and what you used to do? He goes, now I'm saving lives. That's a perfect answer. 62 men he killed. The man on the left is a friend of mine, a dear friend, actually, Evans Hopkins. Evans wrote the introduction to my book. He was a former inmate. He was served over 20 years in a couple of prisons, including the penitentiary, for robbing as a desperately poor young black male in Danville, Virginia, with a pregnant wife and no job. He'd robbed a convenience store, no shots fired, nobody hurt, an all-white jury sentenced him to about 40 years. He served 20, he got, he got out. He's a great, he's a writer today. He's written a couple of really great books. Um, and he's act active with the Writing Our Way Out program. So um, it was so cool to have a former corrections officer and a former inmate um, unveil the penitentiary marker. It was very moving to me, still is. You must. I'm sure you have no questions whatsoever. I um, mean, we only covered 200 years in 50 minutes. So I'd be glad to answer any questions. Uh, Graham's walking around here with a microphone. Wave at him. He'll be happy to come around and. There, there's a story that uh, the pyramid in, uh, in the cemetery. Hollywood Cemetery. That it was capped off by some uh, an inmate at the penitentiary because they couldn't figure out how to do it. Is that is that a true story? That's an absolutely true story. But I do have a section of my book is uh, rumor, fiction versus reality with certain stories that we hear. That's one of them because it's true they did have an inmate scale the uh, pylon to put the capstone on it, but the rumor is that he was given his freedom for doing that. That's false. His record said that he was transferred, quote unquote. What that means is, in language of the time, he was sent to work on the railroads. So he was not released. Another rumor, I had a lot of people tell me this. They said, you know, whenever they used to execute somebody at the penitentiary, the streetlights would dim. No, they didn't. <laughs> the penitentiary electric system was self-contained on its own generator. It was not hooked up to Richmond City electricity, okay? No. There's a lot of these. You know the equestrian statue down at the Capitol grounds? Washington, they say he's looking at the, at the General Assembly, but he's pointing to the penitentiary. <laughs> well, it's true, it is doing that, but it's strictly by coincidence. <laughs> they didn't build it like that, okay? Yes, what else? Yes? So how did the, uh, the prison wa uh, actually wind down? What was the peak population, and how long did it take to get to the last prisoner? And how did, that, how did that come about? Well, peak population, it was when Virginia finally started building other prisons in the 70s, was when they started winding down. Peak population was 3,000 people, which, which was in the late 60s, early 70s. 
Uh, it was a terrible time because there were actually a lot of strikes at the time in the prison, and they started emptying it out then too, uh, and sending them to other states in some cases. Um, but they started this winding down period when they opened Mecklenburg, and then they started opening one after the other after the other, the maximum security facilities in Southwest Virginia, uh, Sussex, uh, some other, Greenville, some others. They started winding down. It took, the penitentiary was in terrible shape at that point. It was in terrible shape. And then they got down finally on December 12, 1991, they were down to the last four inmates. And uh, one of them is still alive and just got out of Deerfield Correctional just weeks ago, Paul Stotts. I've not met him yet, but I hope to. Um, Joe Gerentano was actually the last inmate there. He was scheduled to be executed. The, the penitentiary was empty. Okay, every inmate was gone, but they had to keep the electric chair on sta standby due to Virginia law since Greenville wasn't ready to receive it yet. So the penitentiary was technically still open, and they brought in Joe Gerentano for execution. He was there literally by himself uh, with one guard and his attorney. And then Governor Wilder, when Virginia lost all the evidence in his case, Governor Wilder took death off the table and sentenced him to 25 to life, uh, and he served 38 years. And he, and he became an attorney while he was in prison. He has had briefs read by the U.S. Supreme Court. He's a brilliant mind. He lives in Charlottesville now. So it was a gradual process over 25, 30 years. Yes? Yeah, um, growing up, I always heard the story of John Henry and the steel driver in the machine. Did you do any of the research on that? And um, there were stories about the machine kept breaking, which is why John Henry. Yeah, there was, there's no, I found no evidence. I did not look into it as closely as Scott Reynolds Nelson did for his book, Steel Driving Man, which I do recommend. Uh, it, it's a very good book overall. Just a couple of points I quibble with in it. But um, I found no evidence of a machine. They were all still doing it by hand at that point. I mean, this wasn't soon after the Civil War. There was really no machinery to do that kind of thing. So I found no evidence of it. Could have been something, I didn't see it, but maybe Scott Reynolds Nelson can clear that up for you. Yes, sir, question all the way in the back. I'll get real quick. Um, years ago, the, there were inmates that would participate in art, arts in the park. Right. Well, I did find out fairly recently, I met a young man named Eric Penn. And Eric's brother, I'm sorry, Eric's father and uncle were serial killers in Richmond in the 1960s. But they were great artists, too. And in 1972, they had an art show. I think it was at, on Staples Mill and Monument, the church there. And the judges said they showed the most promise. <laughs> they said their, their work is great. And now their son is also an artist. And there's a story about him coming up in Style Weekly magazine in about two weeks. So take a look. Thank you all so much for having me.